You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a pain, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world, I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a special guest all the way from L.A., this is Ari Herstand. He is a professional musician. He's a singer and songwriter. He's also the author of the book How to Make It in the Mu- How to Make It in the New Music Business. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> not not just the music business, the new music business. How yeah. you doing, Ari? Welcome to the show. I'm uh, doing well. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome, man. So I've just done a very brief intro there, but tell the people a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm a, a singer songwriter. Um, I just launched a funk project, um, author. I have a the music business advice blog, Ari's take. Uh, so I kind of wear a bunch of different hats. Um, and I, uh, I'm kind of staying active. I kind of split myself into two completely different sides of my being. And, and, you know, I'm half like the businessman and, and kind of learn and absorb as much as I can. Uh, when it comes to the music business so I can share that and spread that with other independent musicians around the world. And then the other half is the artist self uh, where I do, you know, my songwriting and performing and and do my own music that way. Awesome. So how long have you been uh, in the world of music? Yeah. So I, um, so I, I grew up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, but I actually moved to Minneapolis, uh, music hub uh you know where prince is from uh for school i went there initially to uh actually university of minnesota to be a uh, classical trumpet major and high school band director was i was like what i was preparing to be i was like uh i realized the very first year i didn't want to be a high school uh, music teacher and i didn't want to play classical trumpet (laughs) and i was like (laughs) starting to uh perform at coffee shops like solo acoustic stuff and so i realized uh that's what i needed to do and so i transferred to music industry school where I study in, in uh, the Twin Cities, where I studied uh, music business and songwriting. And, but there, this was like circa 2005, um, what we were taught in school was kind of how the old music business operated. And at that time, no one really knew what was happening. It was kind of, you know, Napster had just kind of died. Uh, iTunes was on the rise. Facebook was still just part of uh, universities. MySpace was just coming up. Mm-hmm. So that was this era where nobody really knew what was happening. Um, so they taught us basically how the old industry operated. And they taught me that if you want to have a career in music, you have to get signed to a label. And so when I left school, that's what I thought. I'm like, all right, well, I want to have a music career. I need to get signed. So I started where I'm like, all right, 
I'm ready. Where's my record deal? Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> they didn't like tell you, no one was saying like how to get a deal. They're just like, Oh, you just, you need a deal. And then you can start your career. I'm like, all right, well, I'd like to start my career. So where's my deal? And so I realized very quickly that everything I taught or I was taught in school um, was not really applicable anymore. And so I, I had like two options. I'm like, well, I can sit around, just kind of wait for this deal to fall on my lap because that's, you know, once the deal comes, I knew how to negotiate a 120 page recording contract. Like, <laughs> I, could, I could tell you to remove that controlled composition clause. Like <laughs> it was the whole thing I learned about like, man, everything they taught me, like I'm not, none of this is applicable right now. I need to know how, like, how do I get a gig? Like, how do I get fans? How do I, you know, book tours? And so I started figuring all that out on my own. And I'm like, well, I don't want to sit around and wait for this deal. I just want to make a music career happen. And so that's what I did for the next you know, seven years in Minneapolis, I was, uh, I got to a point where basically I was bringing 800 people to my local shows. I was selling out venues around five state region. I was touring nationally, mm -hmm. getting songs placed on TV shows, uh, charting on iTunes and no label, no manager, no booking agent. I was kind of doing this all on my own, figuring awesome. it out and, uh, you know, failing a lot, like making a lot of stumbles and mistakes and learning a lot. Mm. Um, but it got to a point where musicians were kind of like, taking notice and like starting to ask me questions like yo how did you get that song on tv like how did you sell out this venue how are you going on this tour without an agent mm -hmm. um and I would, I would answer everybody and i'd get back to everyone um and but word spread and it was like oh if you have a question about music business go ask ari and eventually i just didn't have time to respond to everybody so that's when i put up the blog which is basically everything i was learning in real time i was writing about it and uh if someone wrote in a question like oh yeah i answered it here and then anytime I learned something, like I got screwed by a club last night, I'm like, hey, this is what not to do. Yeah, <laughs> Here's yeah. how to get past that. And then, uh, and then the blog kind of took off and I started writing for other publications. And then it kind of, uh, you know, musicians came to me. They're like, yo, I've read all of your articles. It's mm -hmm. great, but I need something that can help guide me, piece the dots together. Uh, what book should I read? And I've read all the music business books out there. And unfortunately, there really wasn't one talking about what was happening right now in yeah. the new music business. Mm -hmm. So I felt I needed to write, write that book. Yeah, a lot of them are very outdated. I mean, even if they're just from 2010, it's crazy how right. outdated <laughs> they are. Yeah, it's, it's weird. You'd think with most topics, most books, you can read something from 2010, 2011, and it's, it's mostly applicable. But with music right. book stuff, it's just like, wow. I mean, I started... I released my first album in 2006, and of course, I've done my whole journey independently. And just in that mm -hmm. time frame, 2005, 2006 till now, it's crazy how much it's changed and how many times it's changed. Yeah. From the, the platforms Absolutely. to the, the literal medium that people are using <laughs> to listen to the music. I mean, when we started, the iPhone hadn't even been invented. Isn't that crazy? Right, exactly. Right? <laughs> like, let, let alone like, <laughs> smartphones in general. Like, there wasn't even, no. the first one hadn't even come. Um, right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's crazy, man. So I do yeah. want to talk about your book. But before we get to sure. it, I want to uh, go a little bit more into your story, especially for any sure. aspiring musicians who may be listening to this because you, you know, in one sentence, you said, cool, I went to selling out 800 cap venues and mm -hmm. touring nationally. And mm -hmm. there's someone who's listening to that going, wait, 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 hang on this. Hang on a minute. Wait, like, right. you how did you do you, that? Right. You skipped a couple steps here. So, so can right. you talk us a little, a little bit more about going from essentially a yes. nobody having, having no fans to yep. building it up to the stage where you could draw 800 people to a gig? Absolutely. Um, and so early on, this is circa, you know, I was getting started 05, 06, 07, 08, 09. This is like 
I left Minneapolis in 2010. So that was kind of the era where I was figuring all this stuff out locally, building it up. Um, you know, my very first shows uh, were, were coffee shops um, and bars and, and that kind of stuff. And early on, nobody came to my shows. And I'm like, huh, why did no one come to this show? And I realized like, well, I didn't tell anybody about it. I didn't really promote it. I didn't know what promoting was, but I'm like, all right, well, I guess if I don't tell anybody about it, no one's going to come. So I learned that lesson very early. Mm -hmm. So then I started telling people and not just telling people, I'm like, what happens if I put up posters? Like this was like, I was on the University of Minnesota campus. This was like, uh, I was living around there, even though I wasn't going to school there anymore. It was like, all right, well, there's a lot of people around this area. Let me just like put up posters where people will see them. And that worked. And then I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So let me take that a step further. Let me start handing out flyers and talking to people. Let me get a team together. So I got started with friends and then it was fans. And then I got like a street team together of people that would take flyers and hand them out and talk to people and put up posters. And then we'd have, we'd have Facebooking nights where we would get together and we would create the event and share it on each other's, uh, like all their friends' pages, invite everybody and share it on their walls. And we create videos and goofy videos and we go around and, and make videos and put them up to promote the shows. It was all like, how do we get more people to our show? So I became like really focused on, I, I learned, you know, because when you get burned, when you, when no one shows up to your show, it is, it is the worst feeling in the world. Like that is, I've been there, man. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, we've yeah. all been there. It's like it sticks with you for life. Like I am still, before every show, terrified that no one is going to be there. Like that is PTSD that will never leave. <laughs> like I, so, you know, I hated that feeling so much. I'm just like, I never want that feeling again. And um, so I made sure that every show I I booked, I'm like. I'm not going to rely on anybody else to get people there. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure people show up to this show by whatever means possible. I mean, there was, we were going around with sidewalk chalk writing on like the campus mall, like Ari Herstand varsity theater, 8 PM tonight. Like, you know, we were writing on walls. We were put, I mean, it was, you know, it was slightly obnoxious. I think to some people they're like, what, who is this guy? He's everywhere. <laughs> and I'm like, you're damn right. Get yeah, to the yeah. show. Like, yeah. my, my whole mantra was like, I want people in this location that I targeted, which was the campus at the time, mm -hmm. I want them to wake up the morning of my show and make a decision. Their decision is, I am going to the Ari Herstand show or I am not going to the Ari Herstand show. I didn't want anybody to, to say, I don't know that there's a show happening tonight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was like, you know, so I took that approach and, you know, through that, I became very popular in, on the campus and then in the Twin Cities, it kind of grew to Minneapolis, St. Paul, that kind of stuff. And, you know, there was a lot of people who didn't really appreciate um, the method of, of being everywhere all at once, especially mm -hmm. because they check out the music. It's like, I don't like this music, so yeah. I hate this guy. And so <laughs> it was like, you know, because, it, you know, with popularity comes the haters because uh, I know, it, I know. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> like you force people to pay attention, and then you force them to make a decision about you. And you may not like that, that decision about you, you may not like their opinion about you. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I got a lot of, uh, there, there was a, <laughs> there was a writer for the, the newspaper. Um, it was the uh, music editor for the Minnesota Daily, which was kind of the campus paper, but it had a, a reach of 80,000, uh, 80,000 in the Twin Cities is the second largest newspaper in the state. And, uh, the music editor wrote three hate pieces on me in one semester. <laughs> three <laughs> in one semester. Wow. And, uh, you know, but all the while, like, 
I was selling out venues. I was yeah, opening yeah. for big artists. I, was, I mean, my career was happening, mm-hmm. but like that didn't feel awesome. Like that sucked. Um, but then I kind of took that method in, in other cities that I went to. So I would book neighboring cities and I'd do like little regional tours just around Minnesota and Wisconsin and mm-hmm. Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Chicago, and then the Dakotas and I like Michigan and then Ohio. And, and I'd start to expand bigger and bigger. And I'd go out to New York and I'd go out to LA and Boston and then do the coast. And, and so, but, but I kind of maintained the philosophy like, if I don't promote, no one's showing up. Gotcha. And, and everything I do, I, I realized very early on that no one is going to care about my music career as much as I'm going to care about it. And so I can't really rely on people to do things for me. If I want it done properly, correctly, or done at all, I have to do it myself. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of the that was kind of the foundation of kind of how I built everything. And I maintain that philosophy to this day. Now I, I, I trust people a little bit more. I bring out people who I, who I trust and, and who have proven themselves. Sure. Uh, but, you know, early on, uh, you, you learn those lessons really early. Yeah, absolutely, man. So in terms of being able to go out and promote yourself like that, was that always within you? Is that just part of your personality? I know I myself am an extrovert, so I don't find yeah. it particularly difficult to go out there and you know i built my audience just going out on the street hustling selling my cds hand to hand selling over over twenty thousand albums on the streets of the uk just talking to people hustling grinding um but the thing i get from so many artists and people in general is like dude like that's just not my that's not my personality how how, i can't just go out there and talk to Mm -hmm. strangers and put my face up on posters and do right so how would you suggest to an artist who's more introverted or shy in nature how they can mm-hmm. go about doing that? Is there a way for them to do the same sort of thing? 100%. And, and I, I need to make a quick caveat. Like, this is my personal story of what worked in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10. Mm-hmm. Like this, I don't, I don't recommend this currently for people to do this right now. Okay. Um, in, in, uh, primarily because this utilized the, the, my strengths in the era that we were living in. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, I, I, that's, I talk about tons of artists who are, who are doing things successfully in a way that makes sense for them in this era in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, this is my story. And, and the reason that I like, I've interviewed, I literally interviewed hundreds of people for the book and for the blog to get their stories because everybody has different strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an extrovert also, and I, it comes more naturally to me to go out and talk to people and you know i'm okay putting up posters around town uh, a lot of people are not okay with that and that's okay yeah uh, so it's about identifying what your strengths are and and then finding what uh medium of promotion makes sense for you in an authentic way so there isn't just one way to market or promote your music career but you still have to market and promote your music career if you mm. don't promote your music no one is going to listen to it or show up to your shows or stream your stuff or watch your videos. You have to promote, you have to market. So that's the foundational truth that if you do not promote or don't market, nothing's going to happen for your career. Yeah. But there isn't just one way to do that. And so, you know, I, I highlighted um, some artists who more recently, um, this, this hip hop artist, introvert, uh, he went from three years ago 
to virtually no followers, no streams, no nothing, to now he's got 500,000 monthly listeners, 100 million streams, uh, no label, no manager, no playlists, wow. no playlists, um, all utilizing um, Instagram and Facebook advertising, direct marketing. And he like mastered that system for him. That worked for him. He's like, okay, I know how to make videos. I know how to uh, target people through marketing. And he got real nuanced with the marketing. And that was his strength. Uh, I also talked to somebody who, um, she made $100,000 a year on uh, just live streaming on Facebook live from her bedroom. Oh, wow. Just like doing acoustic little bedroom performances. And people were paying her through a paypal.me link that she yeah. put when she was live streaming on Facebook. I talked to someone else who's similarly live streaming. Uh, you know, they make 20 grand a month on YouNow, uh, just live streaming similarly from their bedroom on YouNow every day. Um, so like that's a method too. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways that someone can make a music career happen successfully in their own unique way, mm -hmm. uh, utilizing their strengths and what makes sense for them. Uh, you know, I have a lot of YouTuber friends who kind of do the YouTube thing. And then now there's Instagram musicians who do the Instagram thing. Uh, there's people who still love you know, street performing and they're making a fine living doing that. So there's no real right or wrong way to make a career happen. It's just about identifying what your strengths and weaknesses are and what kind of career you want to have. Gotcha. Do you think it's become, so compared to when you started in the mid thousands mm -hmm. to now, do you think it's become harder or easier to make a living as a musician? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, way easier. Okay. Uh, way easier. I mean, you know, when I started, uh, we were at this, we were kind of at the cusp. It was like the, the, the end of the old music business and the beginning of the new music business. I mean, mm -hmm. this is, yes, the internet had been around for a while, but no one had really figured out this was pre right apps, pre smartphones, all of that. Uh, social media wasn't really, we didn't really understand what that was at the time. Um, you know, YouTube hadn't even started. Uh, and so now we're, we're starting to see that, uh, because there are so many more ways to reach an audience in a much more efficient manner. It's not very efficient to have to go through a Minnesota bl blizzard and put up posters <laughs> with the staple gun. Like that's not efficient. Yeah. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, but you know, like that was the only method at the time to get my word out to all these people in this, in this location. Mm. Now I can run a Facebook ad and like send it or whatever, you know, an Instagram ad and get them to know it. Or I can target them through various means that are much more efficient and effective yeah. uh, than, than freezing my ass off in a Minnesota blizzard. Um, but, but not just that, like, what we're starting to see now is all of these tools that are available to us is uh, we're starting to see many, many, many more musicians able to make decent livings, good living, supporting themselves, mm -hmm. uh, doing what they love. And actually we're starting to see uh, a swell of middle-class musicians. Mm -hmm. Whereas like 15 years ago and, and prior it, 10 years ago and prior, it was really either you're a superstar or you're a starving artist. And there yeah. really wasn't much in between. And now we're starting to see so many more middle-class musicians doing it in really creative ways. Like, you know, I just outlined like three, but mm. there's like a hundred ways that people are, are, are doing it in like very unique creative ways. Um, and so I have seen uh, that happen and, and the more people I talk to and the studies that are starting to come out, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see like uh, even just in, in 
the live music realm, you know, 15 years ago, it was like 95% of all the touring money came from uh, major label artists. And now it's like 60%, you mm, know, that's interesting. And so, and, and, and not even and with recorded revenue, we're starting to see that pie shift as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the recorded revenue in 2019, uh, Independent artists, no label artists, self-release artists made over $2 billion, billion with a B, wow. 1 billion just in recorded, uh, recorded revenue. Mm -hmm. So that's a billion dollars, $2 billion that didn't really exist uh, 15 years ago. Like the independent artists weren't making that kind of revenue mm -hmm. uh, collectively. And then I, and now I, and I see it on an individual level. So when we look at it on a macro scale, it's happening. The numbers don't lie. Uh, and then when we look at it on an individual scale, I'm literally hearing every day of artists who are making it work in creative ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and not only that, the middle class artists, we are starting to see artists reach that level of uh, Chance the Rapper was, you know, one of the first independent artists to break out on a massive scale in a big, big way. Um, but we're now starting to see that he's not the only one. He's not an anomaly. I, I knew that he wasn't going to be the only one, uh, that we're going to start to see that more and more. But the labels like to say, well, he's the only one. And if you want to be a break, you know, you want to be a big star, you got to sign with a major label, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. That's not true anymore. Like Wolfpack, a funk band, a niche funk band just sold out Madison Square Garden. Wow. Like, they, don't, they don't have a label. They don't, have, they don't even have a manager. That's and nuts. They sold out. they sold out Madison Square Garden and they wow. sold out the Greek. The Greek wow. Theater in LA. I've heard of them, yeah. but I didn't know they were selling out Madison Square Garden. That's crazy. Yeah, they did. <laughs> and, right. So, you know, so we're starting to see this uh, not just on the middle class musician level swelling, but we're also starting to kind of these artists break out on a really massive way in a big way that traditionally was reserved for only those major label artists. And, uh, and but that's the thing is it's like it's almost like the democratization of the music industry that is happening right now. Uh, it's not just a few radio DJ gatekeepers or major label gatekeepers that are deciding who is going to be a star and who's going to succeed and who's not going to succeed. Mm. Now you can find your audience on your own. And if an audience connects with you, you go straight to the fans. Um, so, you know, people have become obsessed with like Spotify playlists and they think that Spotify playlists are uh, the, the, the end all be all and like, Oh, if we don't get on a playlist, it's a failure. My album fails. My song fails. I'm a failure. Nobody likes me. It's like, no, that's not accurate. You don't need, that's just another Avenue that you could, some people are finding success on, but not everybody. And you don't need playlists. Like I was just um, talking about my uh, friend, Lucidius, the hip hop artist who he's got a hundred million streams, 500,000 monthly listeners on Spotify without any Spotify playlists. And mm -hmm. so we're starting to see more and more of those examples where you can build a career. If you find your audience who will connect with your music. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about your book. So you've just released the second sure. edition of how mm -hmm. to make it in the new music business. I did get the first edition uh, when you were in the UK. It was, I think it was last year or was it the year before that? I think um, it was, yeah, maybe end of yeah, 2017. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think November 2017, in fact. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us a little bit more about the book. We've obviously been touching on it already, but give us a sure. little bit more about it. You know, I rewrote the entire social media chapter because the social media landscape has changed so drastically in the last three years. Mm. Um, but the thing is, is why this book is going to be able to stay current, whether you get it today or you get it a year from now, is because... Um, I, I don't say like, 
go onto Instagram and in the top right corner, click the three dots and hit the drop down and then hit over there because that's going to change. Yeah, yeah. What I do is I tell stories of how people have been successful utilizing these platforms and then uh, ideally to uh, inspire and encourage you to, to find a way to make uh, your, to figure out how to do it for yourself, utilizing your strengths and figuring out what makes sense for you. Um, and so, you know, I do like the live uh, touring that doesn't change as rapidly as social media. So uh, the chapter on how to book your own tours and how to be a star in your hometown and sell out your club shows and venues and stuff like that, that doesn't really change as much. Uh, I do tell more stories of people who have done it in creative ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a whole the, the touring section on there. Uh, there's how to break into the college entertainment market um, and get sponsorships and, and all of that. And then the philosophies of just kind of how to be a uh, basically how to build your audience one fan at a time and how to reach your, your fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and then uh, over the last three years, I would get messages from people who were reading the book and they would have questions about it. And so uh, I kind of kept a, a running list of um, a running list of just questions that I was receiving and maybe things that need to be clarified. And so the second edition, I basically went through and you reread the, the book, every page kind of made notes, uh, updated things here and there, added paragraphs, removed paragraphs. Um, and then I added about 50 pages of new information. Um, a lot of times of the stuff that people were needed some uh, clarification on. And uh, I went much deeper into artist branding, how to create your artist world, how to kind okay. of keep everything cohesive. Um, so yeah. So from the first edition, what were the most common questions that you received in terms of feedback? Sure. Um, Well, uh, royalty collection and just understanding royalties, uh, I clarified that. So because so many people like yourself got the book all over the world, Mm. um, I made the second edition much more global uh, in terms of royalty. So I, uh, the first edition was very U.S. centric. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, you know, I'm in the U.S. and so I kind of wrote it from that perspective uh, this, the second edition, actually I have a whole section on the London music scene. Okay, uh, cool. So I added, yeah, I added the London music scene in the second edition, but also how to collect your royalties, no matter what country you're in. Uh, you know, there's people in over a hundred countries that have, that have got this book. Um, and then music business classrooms are teaching it all over the world. And so I'm like, all right, definitely make it much more global. Um, so that was definitely a question. I clarified the royalty section. I created, I think the thing I'm most proud of uh, in the second edition are these flow charts that I made, like royalty flow charts. Uh, it's just like a visualization of where, how royalties are broken down and, and how to collect that, all your royalties, because royalties mm-hmm. are so incredibly complicated. Um, so uh, yeah, and then other questions that I would get um, were kind of, along the lines of uh, really people not understanding why fans were not connecting with their project. Mm. And I would kind of dig deeper and they would ask, you know, well, I, I, uh, you know, I think my music's great, but, but I can't, I can't get people to my shows and I can't get people to stream my music and uh, what's going on. And then I would dig deeper and I would see, it's like, Oh, because you don't understand who you are as an artist you're not communicating your message effectively of what you stand for and why people should actually care about you as an artist. Like great music is, is just the baseline. That's just the foundation. Like, yes, you need to have great music, but you need so much more. Like if you want to, if you want fans of you as an artist, 
you need to showcase to them why they should care about you as an artist. Um, and so I kind of, I added a whole section on just discovering and figuring that out for yourself of who you are as an artist. Awesome. So you live in LA now. So I'm curious, what was it like for you? And what was the impetus to move from Minneapolis to LA, given how well you were doing in that area? Sure. Um, well, there's a couple reasons. The biggest one was uh, I needed to get out of the winters. I couldn't handle the I couldn't handle the cold anymore. And LA is is beautiful every day of the year, year round. Um, so that was that was one big thing. The other one was honestly, um, I kind of wanted a, a a new challenge, new frontier. Like I felt like I kind of did everything I could in Minneapolis. Um, and I was plateauing there. Uh, there's definitely a ceiling. Uh, if you just kind of stay in your local market or just stay in Minneapolis, there's a ceiling. I, I felt like we we're kind of an island. Um, I was confused why I was bringing so many people to my shows locally, but no one in the industry seemed to care. Yeah. Uh, and that I couldn't get anyone outside of Minneapolis or the Midwest or people, uh, you know, other than my fans to kind of pay attention. Mm. And so I didn't really understand that. And I wanted to kind of explore what LA could offer. But, but honestly, it was really, I wanted a challenge. Like um, in Minneapolis, there weren't really many other singer songwriters who I could collaborate with. And I wanted to do a lot more co-writing and collaboration. And of the singer songwriters who are actually making it happen, um, you know, there was just a few and I, I had collaborated with them and, and I wanted more. And then I was in my mid twenties and what really was the final straw, what did it for me was some of my favorite bands in town. Um, they started to break up, quit music. Artists uh, started to give up because they couldn't figure out how to make it work. And uh, they were, these were some of my favorite artists, favorite okay. albums, favorite bands, and they were breaking up. And so I was like losing my music community. I was losing mm. my, my community there. And it was like breaking my heart. Because uh, we were playing shows around town and, and they were doing super well locally. Like they would bring yeah. 500 to 1,000 people to their shows locally. But again, no one paid attention outside of Minneapolis. And that I just... Why do you think that is? Do you think that's just sort of industry oversight? Do you think that's naivety? Do you think that's them just not caring? I mean, I, I find that bizarre. I mean, I think if someone can draw 500 mm -hmm. people to a show anywhere, mm -hmm. like in any locality then, I mean, I'm not a, you know, I've done everything I do independently, but I imagine if I worked at a label and I was some kind of A&R or talent scout or whatever, and I'm seeing people drawing five, I don't care what, I don't care where they are, right? If I see people drawing yeah. that kind of audience, then it seems almost like a no brainer that there will be millions of people on a wider scale who would like and appreciate mm -hmm. that. Right. I mean, there's, uh, yeah. I have, I have analyzed this to death because it <laughs> yeah. was, it was dumbfounding to me as well. Um, you know, at the time, now we're talking kind of, uh, Oh nine, 2010, uh, it was still, um, you know, there wasn't, this was pre Spotify and this was, uh, kind of height of YouTube and, and all the industry people were really like at that point, they weren't really paying attention to what was happening anywhere else necessarily, unless uh, like there was YouTube, like viral YouTube videos or something mm. like that. Um, and so a lot of these artists weren't having success on the internet, but they were having success in the physical realm yeah. and no one was being notified outside of Minneapolis that something was happening here. 
Um, and so unless you, you got the attention, uh, but even so, like there was a couple bands who got signed to majors. Like there's one of my favorite artists and they got signed to a major. Uh, it was a subsidiary of EMI at the time. They had the full weight of the label behind them. And then as things go, uh, the label lost interest. They got shelved and the record never came out and the band ended up breaking up. Um, so that was happening too. Um, and then there was other artists who kind of had the full weight of the city's media behind them. Yeah. Uh, the city fell in love with them. All the press was writing about them. The local management company was, was uh, working with them. Uh, everyone in town was in love with this band. Yeah. But then they would go on tour and nobody showed up to their shows on tour because nobody knew them outside of Minneapolis mm. and they didn't have any traction online because it's a, diff it's a totally different skill set um, to perform, to, to make great music in the studio, to perform live in and of itself. Those are two completely different skill sets. You have to master those two. Sure. Great, create great music in the studio and put on a great live show, completely different muscles that you have to work at equally hard to master both. And then it's a totally different skill set to then, uh, communicate your message and your music online. And like they, you know, we're in this era where people expect, artists to be masters of the internet mm -hmm. and unless you can like figure out your instagram game nobody in the industry or really fans are are paying attention to you or even care about you yeah and so like that uh is frustrating for a lot of artists they're like well i my record is great uh my live show is great why is no one caring about me and why do i only have two thousand instagram followers and i only have you know five thousand streams on spotify or whatever and like and then this kid comes out, uh, a bedroom musician, who <laughs> figures out exactly how to, how to game Instagram and Spotify and breaks out with you know, 10 million streams uh, his first month. And he gets 100,000 followers on Instagram. And like everyone is drooling over this kid. And he's never played a live show. And, and I see bands like raging about there. Like, what the fuck? Like, I've played uh, 500 shows and I've released six records. In the, you know? and, but the difference is, is like, the bands that put in the artists that put in the time and and actually build up this fan base they're going they're the ones who are going to have the sustaining careers and Absolutely. so you know we become obsessed with these vanity metrics and yeah this kid in his bedroom has got 100,000 Instagram followers and, and 10 million streams this month because he got uh, thrown on a few great Spotify playlists mm -hmm. in 3 years we're probably not going to be hearing from them yeah, because you see that all the time. he absolutely and because we, we the, he becomes obsessed with that that game, he's like, "Oh, I, I'm successful. I'm I'm uh, I'm the king of the world right now. I'm famous." And then he doesn't really realize that the that's fleeting. That's in, insanely fleeting, mm. and no one really cares on a deep level. Whereas like that indie band with five thousand streams, those are five thousand people yeah. that they've like you know grinded it out that have seen them in the clubs and that are going to stick with them for life and they will back their upcoming crowdfunding campaign. They'll become patrons and they'll mm -hmm. buy their merch and continue to come to their shows for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. In the current age that we live in, how important do you think it is for artists to even focus locally at all? Like what scale do you think that artists should be thinking on? I mean, you've got all these mm -hmm. internet tools. I know with myself, for example, I have more listeners in, considerably more listeners in the U.S than I do in the UK. That goes for both mm -hmm. this podcast, that goes for my music, that goes for pretty much mm -hmm. everything I do. My book sales, it's primarily US. So mm -hmm. given where we are now, you know, the old, the old thing was always, of course, you know, if you're a band from New York, 
you start out in New York, you do the New York grinding circuit. If you're from London, do it in London. If you're from uh, Los Angeles, do it, do it there. Wherever you are, always start local. But given mm-hmm. where we are now, do you think that's still sort of sound advice or even necessary? Or do you think people should just look on a sort of global level, internet level, sort of off the bat? Right. So uh, if the most important thing that any artist can do at any stage of their career, whether they're just starting out or whether they're 20 years in, is to identify what your goals are. And once you identify what your goals are, meaning what, what kind of career do you want to have? What are your concrete goals? Do you want to play live? Do you want to sell out venues? Do you want to tour? Or do you want to just be an internet artist? Or do you want to just uh, get your music synced to film and TV and commercials? Mm. Or do you want to just live stream from your bedroom? So it's really important to identify what is important to you because there is not a one size fits all anymore. And when artists come to me and ask me this question, I'm like, I can't tell you what to do until I know what you want, what, what kind of career you want to have, but also what kind of music you make, what's important to you, what your strengths and weaknesses are. So if, if you want to be a live artist, if you want to perform live, I think it's extremely important to build it up locally uh, because you have to grind it out and you have to figure out what is working and what's not working on, in a stage show live. And your hometown audience is going to be much more forgiving mm-hmm. than when you hit the road and people are giving you one shot or you get out to LA or New York or London or something like that. And, and the, the bar is the, so much higher there. Yeah. Uh, the quality threshold is so much higher because there's just so much more competition and people have seen it all. Like in LA, if you invite me to your show in LA and I pay $10 or even if you put me on the list and I come see your show and you suck, I'm never going to see you again. Like I, that it's, it's not me being an asshole. It's like literally I have four shows a night that I'm trying to get to because that's just how saturated Los Angeles is. Mm. So like, if you invite any, and I'm like, legitimately, I'm, I'm, I have four shows tonight that I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to go see. <laughs> and it's like, that's, that's every night in LA. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's like, if you invite people out to your show in LA, like you have to bring it and yeah. people, you, you have to be unstoppable and you don't become unstoppable by creating a great record in the studio mm-hmm. or in your bedroom. Like you become unstoppable live force by performing a thousand live shows and you have to, you have, the only way to become a better performer is to perform more. Mm. So, you know, your local market is going to be much more forgiving. And then also you you figure out what works and what doesn't in terms of promotion. So when you start to promote your shows, you'll figure out what kinds of promo is working and what, and what doesn't work. And then you can kind of scale that a bit. Um, And yes, I mean, you can't ignore uh, the internet and like, yes, you, you know, in whatever capacity, whatever kind of career you have, if it aligns with the goals that you've identified, yeah, you need to focus on your, your internet game as well. Mm -hmm. But that's, if you want to be a live performer, yes, absolutely. I think you need to start local. Yeah, man. Here's a question, dude. Um, You know, this show is, this show is real talk with Zuby. So here's a question that's on my mind. Sure. And it's something that I wonder sometimes myself when I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a full-time independent musician, but I've, I feel like I spend very little time actually making and performing music a yes. lot of the time, especially yes. a year like this, because I've just been doing all these other things. Do you, you know, this is, a, this is not talking so much like practically and entrepreneurial, entrepreneurially, but yes. do, you, do you ever kind of feel like it's, a, it's almost, a, it feels like almost like a, a bit of a shame that the music isn't even sort of at the forefront of 
a lot of these discussions. You know, people are talking YouTube strategies and Instagram right. strategies and how to do this and how to do that. And so much of it, like I get it, you know, I, I'm in that world. I, I know what's mm-hmm. necessary, but sometimes mm-hmm. maybe this is me just being a little sort of, uh, I don't know, like reminiscing about a past I didn't live in or something, but me just <laughs> thinking, you know, it's, it's kind of a shame that it's not just like the music, you know what I mean? Do you, do you ever feel that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a, I'm an artist at my core. I'm a yeah. songwriter. I'm a musician at my core. Um, you know, that is when I become the most connected spiritually, emotionally, um, you know, to my, to connect with my soul, uh, that is through music and yeah. that is through, um, the arts that I create. Um, and so, you know, I, I always say, um, to maintain your sanity, um, and, and just to, to, um, not just your sanity, but your, your, um, this is a good, um, it's a good method for your, your career at large. Um, I like practically, I, cause I break everything up in, in practical terms. I've thought about the lot because I, I'm an artist too. I connect with this. I understand. Um, I have a 50, 50 method that I encourage everybody to use. It's 50% of your time should be spent on your art and the creation of that art. Um, and then 50% of your time should be spent on the business. And you don't want it to go, the pendulum to swing too far to one end or the other. Mm. You want to maintain that balance. Um, and it's not, it's not an everyday thing. Like when you're creating your album, yeah, you're going to spend 85% of your time in studio working on your music and writing the songs and all of that. And that's totally cool as you should. Mm. And then when you're promoting that album, uh, that's going to flip. You're going to spend 85% of your time on the business side, on the promotion and the marketing and all of that. Um, but it's, it's that balance that you want to maintain throughout the course of your entire career. And, you know, personally, um, I got so caught up with everything I was doing with Ari's take and with the book and my Academy and and Mm -hmm. everything that I was doing that I was going weeks, uh, without writing. And I I I started months. I go months. Yeah. 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 And I started to go insane. (laughs) And I'm like, uh, I like, I can't do this. Uh, I I need to carve out time for music. Otherwise I'm going to lose my sanity. Um, so now, um, every Tuesday is my writing day. Mm -hmm. Um, no, no matter what, like I, Carve out this time. I go off the grid, and I go to my studio and I write. And that's and everyone on my team knows that they don't, they can't get in touch with me on Tuesdays. I don't care if like you know, uh, if uh, if anybody you know, if if um, if Bruno Mars calls and wants to collaborate, like I'm <laughs> off the grid. <laughs> like I'm off the grid. You can't get in touch. You can come bang on my door. Yeah. <laughs> you know where I live. Uh, but that's it. But that's like, I'm off the grid. I turn my phone off and I'm writing. And that's a, that's a Tuesday. Uh, for me, I needed to carve that, that day out and that mm. time out for me. That, that's actually a really good idea. I think, I think in 2020, that may need to be my plan. I'm, I'm planning yeah, to man. block out probably a couple weeks in January just to nice. just go back into my creative zone because this yep. year has just been, it's just been business head all year. It hasn't been. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, I'm even getting people like, man, when are you going to make some new music? Are you, are you yeah. even still doing music? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to do all this <laughs> other stuff. And it's hard, oh, no, to be, uh, it's hard to be doing all that. And then also switch 
my brain into sort of creative zone. So yes, yeah, man, absolutely. I was wondering how you deal with that. So here's a, one, one of the last questions is, sure. we've talked about where the music industry was 10 or so years ago and just how drastically it's shifted in that time. Where mm -hmm. do you see things being in 2029? <laughs> um, let me put my Nostradamus hat yeah, on. Yeah, go for it. Um, right. So I am, am seeing uh, the continuation, um, the, the fragmentation of the music industry in the sense that um, we're, we're starting to see artists carving out more and more uh, niches of unique kinds of communities and scenes online that uh where where before you know if you created some weird uh progressive fusion math rock jazz hip-hop blend mm -hmm. that was like so odd and crazy um and let's say you lived in lincoln nebraska um and maybe there was only three people in lincoln nebraska that got into what you were doing you would think to yourself oh man nobody's into what i'm doing but let's say there's 50,000 people in the world who are, would be obsessed with that kind of music. Now you can find all those people and you can build a solid, solid career off of 50,000 people. Uh, you don't even need 50,000. You can, you can do a thousand people. Mm -hmm. um, but now you can find those people and we're just starting to see more and more ways where you can hone in on the people that are really going to connect with what you do. And, you know, I don't know what platforms or mediums or how that's going to work in, in 10 years from now. But what I'm seeing is that people don't care as much about being fed uh, from the gatekeepers, from the, the labels or from pop radio DJs saying, this is what you should care about. Uh, kids are finding what they want to care about uh, that, that connects with their own unique personalities and we're, we're we're being more encouraged. Kids are being more encouraged every day mm. um, to to in, uh, embrace their their complete uniqueness. To their their open up their creativity and embrace who they are uh, and their full unique selves. And by doing that, you find uh, a community that you can connect with. And oftentimes, uh, music is is a a central part of that. And so. Now you don't need to just turn on the radio or go to your local club to find that kind of music, um, you know, or even just on YouTube searching around. We are starting to see that through so many different modes and methods and platforms. And so I think it's really exciting and encouraging mm -hmm. that, um, you know, we're going to be, you know, you create music. I mean, we, we know now that there's virtually no barrier of entry. Like, what's his name? Um, the producer of Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar's record, one of the producers on his new record, uh, made, made, uh, the entire production from his iPhone. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, that was uh, for damn. Um, and like we see that, uh, Steve Lacey, that's his name. Okay. Uh, Steve Lacey made, made the, the beat from his iPhone. Like, <laughs> and like, so there's no barrier to entry right now. It's, it's basically, um, it's, that, you know, 10 years ago, there was still a barrier of entry. You still need to like buy Logic or Pro Tools or Ableton or something like that. Mm -hmm. And now if you can afford a phone, um, you can, you can make the music. And then if you, you can distribute it literally from your phone to Spotify for free, uh, 
and then you can promote it from your phone. Like you don't even need a laptop anymore. Yeah. Um, and so the barrier of entry is so low, but it's about, it's, you know, we're, we're going to see more uh, creative ways that, that artists are finding their audience. Yeah, man. Do you think that, uh, how do you think radios and labels and some of those more traditional aspects of the industry are going to go? Do you think, do you think radio will still be, I don't know. Like, I wonder if radio will still really be a thing as we know it, even in, even in 10 years, just with the speed at which things move. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, it's interesting. I I feel like the major labels are always going to have a place because they are, because they have the money and the connections. uh, They are able to break superstars very quickly. Mm. Um, and it's kind of, you know, that's the superstar industry and, and they don't pretend they're anything but that. Sure. Um, and so it's like they, you know, um, Avery Lippman, the president of Universal Republic Records, he said that one of the largest record, major record labels in the world, he said, uh, our job is to make famous. It's like, that's mm. what we do. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, it's not to build careers. It's not to make careers happen. It's to make, to make famous. And so that's... Uh, that's going to be the position of, of the majors and that has become that position. And I feel like that's, they're still going to be around for that purpose mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, because there's always going to be, the public always craves celebrities and, and superstardom. And, and there's a certain subset, not even subset, it's just the, there's a large part of, of the population that um, is obsessed with celebrity and, yeah, sure. and, and superstardom. And so that's, I feel like always going to be around. Uh, it's been around since the dawn of media. That's true. Um, and so I don't think that's going anywhere. And I think that that's going to be that angle. Like I not concerned with that at all. Mm. Uh, like I've kind of pretty much ignored that whole scene um, in the sense of just what I study, because like to me, that's not interesting. Like yeah, it's yeah. not int- like superstardom and celebrity culture is not interesting to me. What's mm. interesting is how artists can build up careers on their own who that will connect with, with fans who will stick with them for life. Gotcha. Um, that that's interesting who can create this on their own unique ways because the, what's frustrating with me is the, the labels still maintain the gatekeepers and they're, mm. you know uh, it's basically a couple people there saying uh, yes, you know, you. Yeah. And um, so, you know, and with radio, when it comes to radio, um, I guess traditional terrestrial pop radio. Uh, similarly, that's going to be, that's what it's become is, is kind of just the superstar uh, platform. And, but they've, they've, they've been less influential. I mean, they come to the party last now. Yeah, that's I true. mean, you know, radio hasn't really been the influencing force uh, for about 10 years. Like it mm-hmm. used to be, um, you know, yes, 10, 15 years ago, uh, if you wanted to to break out, you needed to get onto the radio. Uh, now, um, you don't need to be on the radio at all to be successful or to be wildly successful. Like I mentioned, Wolfpack before, who sold mm-hmm. on Madison Square Garden, and the Greek, they're not on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> and like we're seeing a lot of these artists um, who aren't on the radio and who are succeeding. But I will radio still be around? Yeah, I think local radio always has its place. Mm-hmm. Um, People want to kind of connect to their their local community a bit. Um, uh, however, what I think what we're going to see is when you get into your car, you're not really going to know 
um, whether like when you just want to listen to something, it's kind of, is it going to be Spotify? Is it going to be a local radio? Is it going to be serious? It's all going to be just kind of one. You're just going to say like, yeah. verbally say to your car like play play this artist or play this artist's mm. radio station um or or play kcrw or something like that you know yeah i think stuff will be well it's already become much more on demand but i i imagine right. the idea of having things programmed specifically at certain times i kind of see that going going the way of the dodo to be honest so here's one question because yeah. okay so there's one thing that is a big concern i know it's a big concern in the uk I don't mm-hmm. know how it is in the U.S., but this is small and medium-sized live music venues. There's a yeah. lot of them that are closing down all over the country now, um, mm-hmm. and that's a big concern to the point that it's even been raised up in in Parliament. And every year, it just seems like there's less and less small venues. You know, the massive ones are generally doing all right, um, mm-hmm. but the sort of hundred to hundred to even five hundred cap venues. They're just mm-hmm. taking an absolute pummeling. Um, one, is it the same thing in the U.S.? And two, what do you think venues like that could potentially do to survive and thrive in the current era? Sure. Um, you know, from the first edition to the second edition of the book, uh, for the New York music scene, um, I because I profile New York, L.A., Nashville, and now London – and I talk about the music scenes and I talk about the live music venues mm. um, from the first edition, the second edition, literally three years, um, 10 venues that I talked about in New York, all smaller venues, small to mid-sized venues had shut down Wow. Um, and, or had moved. They yeah. had moved from like Manhattan to Brooklyn or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, we're starting, we're seeing that happen in LA. To be honest, I've seen the opposite happen Interesting. Uh, more small venues have popped up in LA in the last five years then have shut down. Mm. Um, so, you know, and in other music markets, uh, I haven't seen as many venues shut down um, as uh, like New York, but New York, there are other factors like New York, just, I mean, art, just Manhattan has become just insanely expensive. And so sure. just, artists just aren't living there anymore. Um, let alone, you know, playing shows with people going to see music, but What's really interesting that happened in LA, and I just had a conversation um, on my podcast for uh, with uh, Mitchell Frank, who runs Spaceland Presents, who's one of the largest, uh, most legendary promoters in Los Angeles. Um, and now they have, I think, they have like uh, ten or fifteen outlets, like venues and festivals and that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, they had been a fixture in the Los Angeles music scene, this the, kind of the small to mid-sized venues. Um, Live Nation just acquired them. And I asked them, I'm like, so the beast just ate you up. And now have you lost all the power? And so now it's just Live Nation. And he's like, well, actually, Live Nation, uh, they basically said, you continue to do what you do. Uh, we, we acquired you because we love what Spaceland does. And we love what these, these smaller venues are doing. And we're almost looking at these smaller venues as A&R tools for us to kind of mm. Uh, facilitate to grow the artist to a to a, um, our our bigger more marquee venues, mm-hmm. um, and you know I I thought that was really interesting um, because I was expecting the opposite. I was expecting Live Nation to uh, buy these venues, uh, acquire Spaceland, shut down Spaceland, shut down these small venues, <laughs> and like you know uh, open up uh, bigger more corporate ones. Yeah, but they're not doing that, and uh, we're starting to see 
that happen more and more. Uh, not that I'm a fan of, of these big corporate behemoths acquiring uh, and buying up all these smaller little clubs. Sure. Um, but if it means that these smaller clubs can thrive and succeed uh, and they're treating artists fairly and you don't have to deal with bullshit pay-to-play promoters uh, mm-hmm. that have like infested a lot of smaller venues, mm-hmm. um, I'm cool with that, you know? And so there's definitely... Uh, I see the live music scene thriving, um, even in smaller markets. Um, you know, he was saying, at least in Los Angeles, uh, there was, uh, this, the 300 cap echo, the echo here, he's like 50% of our shows are sold out at this 300 cap club here in in LA. Um, and, and that's with extreme competition. Like I said, there's literally four shows almost every night that I'm trying to get to Mm. with that much competition, this 300 cap venue. Uh, is is sold out fifty percent of the time. So oh, I, think, yeah, there's always going to be a place for live music. People, you know, uh, crave that that physical connection, that community, that scene. And uh, even with like VR coming up, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, you're going to VR concerts and whatever. Like you know, no one can pass you a joint in a VR experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So man, I, I hope. That that's good there, man. I, I I do have some some big concerns about about the UK, man, because it's uh mm. it's it's certainly not going in that direction. But uh, we that's we fun. will see. We will see. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, man. So um, let people know where can uh, what's the best place to get your book from if people are interested. Uh, sure. If you uh, have a local bookstore you want to support, uh, every local bookstore either will carry it or you'll be able to order it from them. Uh, you can go to Amazon. Uh, Amazon uh, is, is a very efficient, easy way to get the book. So uh, head on over to Amazon and you can get it there as well. Awesome. And uh, where can people find you online if they want to follow you? Sure. Um, I am everywhere on the socials, just under my name, Ari Herstand. Uh, on Instagram, it's just at Ari Herstand. Um, and then Ari's Take is the music business um, company and so that's ari's take.com or ari's take on on instagram or facebook twitter awesome ari thank you so much for coming on the real talk with zuby podcast i've learned a lot from your blog over the years so keep it up uh congrats on the launch of the second edition of the book i will certainly be checking that out and uh ladies and gentlemen this is ari herstan of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.